if we were making some kind of like business to business, uh, like a back end app, like, right, like the like a company uses to track inventory or something like that, compared to a video game, that is a trivial piece of software. Yeah. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 427 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the miscellaneous programmer. I'm Sam and I'm yet again wondering how it's been how so have we many come episodes. This far? <laughs> yeah, wow. That's like eight years of episodes. Wow. Nine? That's a lot. Uh, anyway, well, this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry for years, just for uh, for decades mm-hmm. on end. We just cannot stop talking about it. We and invented is a podcast just to be able to talk about this. We did. Yeah, we saw a hole in the market. Uh, we yeah. just is jumped there, right in. Is there an older podcast than this? No, don't look it up. There isn't nope. one. Nope. This is There's the no podcast. way to check. Nope. <laughs> Uh, today's August 4th, 2023, and before we get started, we have a warning there's going to be profanity in this show, so get fucking ready <laughs> for that. Uh, get sentence. fucking jazzed. If you didn't turn this off as soon as I said warning, then you you, you signed up for that, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, also, we'd like to thank our recurring supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Uh, they went over there, and then uh, we, we just yoinked their wallets right out from under their back pockets. Mm-hmm. Okay, so thank you very much for that. Uh, all right, so we've got some questions to get into today. But cool. first, we want to talk a little bit about what's been going on with Crashlands 2. Yeah. So uh, we're getting into uh, content push mode. And we're getting out of systems development mode. But what does the, what does that even mean? What does it even mean? Yeah, I think it depends, right? So a lot of studios, a lot of times you'll hear talk of what's called pre-production versus production, right? And the trouble is that those are conceptual things, not real things. And I mean that in the sense and of confusingly like, named. Yeah, also confusingly named. And so different studios define those phases of development differently. And there's kind of a very blurry edge between the two of them. Um, so the way we've been thinking about it on our side is that pre-production is the time of more of molten molten game systems, right? Where you're still figuring out how things hook together, how things loop together. Um, and what might be the case that you've already figured out what's fun about the game. That's usually just one piece of the puzzle. You got to figure out, you know, how do you extend that fun for X number of hours? How do you then make control schemes that work with that fun on whatever target platforms you're going for? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, and then kind of scope your content. And so for us, moving from pre production essentially actually then sounds like most of development, weirdly enough, like more than half typically. Uh, oh, yeah. Things. And then production is where you're like, we know what we're doing for, like, we know all the big things. And now it's just a matter of figuring out all the small things. So, yeah, we have weapons in this game. They work like this. They they scale like this over time. We plan to have this many of them. And then it's kind of a question of, okay, well, what are the specific ones we have? What do the specific ones do? That's kind of the, the, the movement that we get to. And so this last week, with all of the work we've done with finishing up the boss fights, um, base systems, we essentially have hit a point where those core systems for the game that essentially need to be in place so that we can answer those other questions about content scope and things like that are all firing. They're all, they're all good to go. Um, and they all certainly have expansion stuff to do. So it's not like we're done with them, but you know, they answer the bulk of the questions that we need them to answer. And so now we can actually see the whole shape of the game, which is cool. The whole thing, the whole thing. And then we can sit down and say, okay, again, all right, here's how armor works. So how are we doling it out over the course of the game? Uh, how is it that the player is going to be finding interesting things every you know, every 20, 30, 40 minutes while they're playing, um, and then just kind of plot a course. So we managed to do that this week, which is fascinating, I think, for two reasons. Um, one is that there's a definite, it's almost like a, when you're designing a game or you're kind of doing this, like a lot of pre-production work, a lot of the, the format of the discussion is in like, oh, what if we want to do X? Yeah, there's right? a lot of it would be cool if. Yes. Conversations. <laughs> yes, it would be cool if. And those are actually, they're, they're great uh, from a high level standpoint in terms of trying to figure out what the edges of your design space, your play space are going to look like, right? So that means like, what if what if the player can buff themselves? Like just, you know, what if they can eat stuff? What if they can shoot projectiles? That Those, those are things. And then, and then you get deeper and you're like, what if the projectiles can also shoot projectiles? What if 
What if the player could throw traps on the ground? Those traps can, can shoot projectiles that buff the player and debuff enemies. You start getting into all these layers. What if being stuff? hit by a spike trap causes you to shart out a tortoise that goes on a rampage? Mm-hmm. That's a... That's a what if. That's a what if. Which is actually technically possible for us to do, could do in that. Crash Runs 2 with the systems that we put together. Yeah. <laughs> and so what's interesting about that is that that early phase uh, can go off the rails. And I think, you know, we've, we have our own experience can, with it. Yes. Uh, because you're you're dealing with not necessarily what exactly. You're basically trying to figure out how to think about what could be in the game based on those fundamental visions of, like, what the play experience is supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, you're not operating within constraints. You're... You're just Correct. exploring an unconstrained space that can kind of yes. go anywhere. Yeah. So and then trying to build do, a suit, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what, what we do as we're talking through a lot of those what ifs is, is we basically say, what kinds of tools and game systems would need to exist for us to actually be able to easily deliver on this what if? Yeah. Right. So, so in the case of like, okay, we want to have weapons in the game that the player can wield and use to fight enemies and stuff. Um, okay, well, w- can we have guns? Can we have spears? Can we have daggers? Like, what, what are all the different types of weapons? Like, can we have ones that shock things with electricity? Can we have weapons that stun things or, you know, whatever it is? Um, and then you got to think through all the implications of, you know, you, you can just hard code stuff. That's always an option. And that's how we always did things in the past. But that means uh, every everything has to go through a multi-step process where it's like, talk about the thing, agree on it. Then the programmer goes off for a while and codes the thing up and then brings it back. And then you kind of talk about it. And then the programmer goes and mm-hmm. program codes up some changes to it. It's very slow. Um, and so the, so our our pre-production phase has been all about developing the the game changer and all this tooling to hook all these things up in an easily modifiable interface so that uh, as we are talking about stuff, if we go, hey, uh, we want a weapon that does this, then just like while we are talking about it, we're just adding that weapon to the game and checking the boxes and choosing the the properties of the weapon or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can, while designing it and while talking about it, we can be prototyping it and testing it in real time. Uh, basically reduces that do it. Yeah, it reduces that cycle time between the idea of the of a potential design for the thing and the iteration on that, like the implementation and iteration of it, to essentially just merge it all together. So this, this the discussion is the implementation, is the iteration. And we actually this is this has been the Goldilocks dream for us that started the game changer, um, because of the follow-on thing from that, which is that if while you're playing the game, say we do a playthrough in a month or something like that, you are you start saying, "Oh, actually, we should probably tweak X, Y, and Z." The second part to me of entering production for real is is answering the question that, or basically knowing the answer to the question of how can you change things once you as you iterate and you get player feedback. Yeah, how do because, you balance the game? How do you add features that are missing? Yeah. Whatever. Because yeah. if it's one thing to say like, "Yeah, we can easily add stuff," because again, like hard coding allows you to very easily just frankly, very quickly add a thing, right? But it actually works against then that second idea of how quickly can we iterate on something when we get feedback? And when you have those two things, I think, put together, you've really entered a really rich spot for production where now you can actually pick the content you're going to make and put it in, right? And so what I think is interesting about that is this uh, collapse that happens. So again, you start in this place where you say, what if... Uh, when you when you dodge, a turtle shoots out of your butt and then it runs on a rampage and then it splits into more turtles over time that just keep on spawning your turtles all the way down sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You move from that space to saying, okay, you know, we need some cool, like a cool class, a cool set of gadgets or uh, capabilities the player has coming out of this particular moment in time in the, in the player's journey, coming out of these resources that fills this hole that we don't have in terms of a play style, right? And it actually suddenly gets very narrow. In other words, like you, we've done all this work to make it possible for us to do anything very quickly. And now we have to actually make some decisions about <laughs> yeah, well, what I think, we I think do. It's, <laughs> it's important because like, I remember when we talked about this earlier, we're like, we want to make it so that we can just add stuff super fast, right? And yeah. But the reason is not so that you can have infinite stuff. So you can sense. have exactly what you want exactly. and have it fast. And yeah. so you can, yeah, so you can have, so you can create a really rich play experience by being able to say, oh, we have a hole here in terms of play style. Let's make, here's this whole suite of content that we made and iterated on and delivered already just by having the discussion about it in like a day. And we can see that it's good and it does the job that we need to do. And then it's, okay, now put 
do all the rest of the fancy stuff, sound effects, art, all the stuff that takes more time, actually. Um, but what's interesting about that is that it, it's strange to me because it felt like the whole point of all this Game Changer stuff, the initial point was like, we want to have a lot of things in this game, right? So we're going to need to have a tool that can make, let us make a lot of things really fast. Mm-hmm. But the specifics of those things were amorphous, right? And then suddenly, now that we've actually done the work this past week of essentially collapsing much of these things down, it was this realization like, oh, actually, you, there's not... There's not infinitely good things, if that makes sense. There's infinite yeah. things, but there's definitely not infinite good things. And there's, and there's also definitely not infinite uh, choices that fill out a really nice, rich play experience, right? There's actually, it's like the whole, the, the melee tank healer sort of build. Like there's there's these big things that actually very seriously constrain the total space for design in a way that automatically just cuts out like 90% cuts out a lot of, of the boring- ideas. Yeah, yeah, most of the stuff like, right? like for example, you know, we have the ability to make much like in the first game, we have the ability to make these uh, trinkets, which are items that you can craft or find or whatever, and you've got a limited number of trinket slots, and each trinket has some kind of unique effect to it. Um, you know, because we have the game changer, it is technically possible for us to make, let's say, thirty different trinkets that all just have varying amounts of stats on them, yep. right? This one gives you, can, you run speed. You can make a thousand. This, yeah, we yeah. can make a million of them if we wanted to. But they're they're boring then. It's just like you would just find the ones that have the most of the stat that you like <laughs> yes. and then you're done. Um, and so instead, you know, we, we took the time to, to make a smaller number of trinkets but that are actually genuinely unique, um, that have interesting like react reactive properties to them or or that actually add some kind of a sort of like a, a new resource. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, an interesting one that we have is, is I'm not going to give away all the specifics, but mm-hmm. it's that just like uh, when you get hit in combat, you gain this buff and then there are other trinkets and weapons and gadgets and stuff that utilize that buff as so it's kind of like we can use a we can use items to kind of establish a cornerstone uh, system for some kind of gameplay style, uh, and then if you get more items that kind of go with that, then it it expands and opens up. But you can also you know mix and match that combo of things with some other combo of things that has its own sort of cluster of interesting uh, properties and play styles and stuff. So it's it's much different than just like plus five percent run yeah. speed, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. So it's so different. And I think that's, that's, what's been interesting is like putting those together, which literally we did this week, like I was the thing this week, um, put together the first uh, four sets of cool kind of conceptualized play style gear uh, in the game. And in putting it together, it is that funny thing where it's like you, you pick a theme, kind of a concept for, you know, for a thing like, yeah, this, this player is all about, you know, going in and like actually doing the opposite of what you usually do, going and getting hit on purpose. How would we support a crazy thing like that? Uh, what would be fun about that, etc. So you do start on that high level, but then you, you're able to kind of just look at here with these things and with these things. And then you test it and you iterate on it. And then it's like, OK, we have actually within that conceptual space there's a very narrow number of things that we that like would be just really interesting to do where if you had to answer the question ooh, if i can only pick one of these or four of the six or whatever that augment this thing like i actually these are cool choices to make right um as opposed to like yeah just it's better because it has more stats on it which we do yeah (laughs) yeah you have to have some level of like growth in like a kind of a boring way right in in something that's like an rpg um well, you can also but, do both, right? As in, like, you can have good. some, like, all because, like, a games like Diablo, right? I think of, like, or basically any loot game, right? I feel like there's there's chaff, right? Yep. And then there's, well, separate, you're separating the wheat from the chaff, I guess, right? Yeah. So, like, so you're wandering around and you find, like, almost everything you pick up, like, is just okay. a random stat machine that's definitely worse than stuff that you've got. Or if it's, or it's, like, similar but not obviously better. Or if it is better, it's usually not enough. It's, it's like, close enough mm-hmm. to a side grade that, who cares really, right? But then every once in a while you stumble across these like truly remarkable things, right? Yeah. Um, and I think in a in a in a more handcraft experience like we're trying to provide where it's less about RNGs, right? Um yes. giving you uh, you know mm-hmm. buffs from above, right? Um there there is still room for that, like where there's like stuff that doesn't isn't as meaningful and there can be kind of more of it, right? But as soon as you actually do start kind of handcrafting these really interesting, more limited experiences, then it also makes the chaff even less yeah. There's a good, you know. Yeah, so yeah. it's there's there's actually a fall off. Yeah, so it's actually hard. It's it's easy to do both when you're purely relying on 
on randomness, Arch. right? Yeah. Because then just things will sometimes get so good out of the randomness that like that's what people actually care about. And part of the game is just finding those things. Um, but when you want everything to actually just be interesting, um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it becomes hard to have a lot of stuff actually because it can't. You can't have a ton of stuff that's also interesting, right? It just well, it's, really it's the no man's sky problem, right? Where yeah. like, there's like a billion planets, and and then you visit one, and it's just Same like the last one, <laughs> also kind of grayish, greenish, and with weird aliens walking around, and that's it, you know? Yeah, and it's uh, all this stuff is is pretty is is pretty difficult to kind of come up with as we're designing things because it does it does take a lot of iteration and stuff, but but that is kind of like the the standard we want to hit is that as you're playing through the game. You come across and something that really kind of piques your interest as something that sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. So you're like, like one example is we've got the uh, the electro fuzz knuckles, which we, may we pulled, which game. which was a trinket actually in the first game. But we're actually going to make it into an actual weapon, weapon fuzz fuzz knuckles, which is a fist weapon basically that generates static electricity, and then you can use the static to to do stuff right and so so there'd be a moment where like once you become aware uh which like different players are going to take different paths right so like not every player necessarily is going to come across this concept of these fuzz knuckles at the same point in time Mm -hmm. but once once you see it even if you don't craft it like once you see it you'll know like oh that's a thing right Mm -hmm. um and then as you go throughout the game you'll every now and then you'll come across the, you know, like a quest chain that sounds like it's got something to do with mm-hmm. electricity and static or you know, whatever. Um, or you'll just kind of get these little hints and then you can, you know, choose to go down those paths. And the idea for us is like, we want, we want to create all these really fun and interesting uh, threads for the player to pull on. And then if they do, when they get to the end of it, they get something that you know, that, that jives super well with the thing that they are interested in mm-hmm. doing in the game. Right. And like that just requires handcrafted Everything. stuff. Cause if it's random, then I think you, you, know, you can also you know. think about this, like the difference between say borderlands with its, you know, infinite guns. guns. Right. Yeah. And everyone's like a fun one. That's like pretty amazing for some reason. Cause it likes truly stands out in some way, but for the most part, it's just like, you're just kind of fun and you just like, right. The sheer number of guns, though, is just overwhelming versus, say, like Half-Life 2, right? Which has exactly one gun per category of kind of gun that you can actually then – because there's not really a level system, right? So, like, it's it's like you can just you get use that it. gun, you're good to go. Yeah, you yep. just use it through the whole game. So then it's like you've got your rocket launcher, you've got your gravity gun, you've got your – whatever. Like, it's just a small suite of really interesting curated experiences that are more or less appropriate for certain kinds of circumstances, but also just for certain kinds of play styles. Right. (laughs) So that, and like, and then you could have a whole gameplay experience where you don't for one moment think, wow, this isn't enough kinds of guns. Right. Because, because each one is just so interesting and is such a fun way to actually engage with the game. I mean, I remember the B gun in the, in the original Half-Life. Yeah. Original Half-Life has some great ones. Yeah. And again, it's not not very many, right? There's not very many kinds of things. Or eight. Yeah, but they're just all so interesting and fun. Yeah, but that's what I'm getting at, which is like there's actually not that many things that are interesting. That's sort of like – that's just sort of – that's the reality. So it's like you're going – you're we've done all this work to create a thing that lets us create stuff really, really fast. With the original inception being we need just a – just shit tons of stuff, right? And then once we're able to actually do all the iteration, finally arrive at the place. It's like, it's like collapsing the controls onto a controller for a game that you've had in your head for a while, right? It's like – there's this reality of a hard, there's actually a hard edge to the space, a hard constraint to the space that you can then utilize. Like it suddenly firms up stuff in a way that like it's It's great. very satisfying. Yeah, it feels very good. Because there's a, there, there actually is, honestly, like we just had a conversation what, like a week ago yeah. where like I was really, I was, every now and then at least one of us on the team yeah. is suddenly just kind of like starts tripping balls yeah. or just like. You're looking at all the work. Still yeah, left. like, well, you're not, you're not actually, that's the problem. You're not actually looking at the work because you can't, because it's so open-ended uh, up until this, this collapse you could point. Make a, yeah, a you're looking at turtle shitting device, you know, so yeah. oh my God, you're looking at the, uns, uh, your own uncertainty about the work. Yeah. yeah. And there's, and because there's infinite possibilities and, and also like, as you're designing the systems, all you're doing is having these what if conversations, right? Mm-hmm. 
And since nothing is solidified, you know, you're kind of entertaining in your mind all, all of these things that have been talked about, but it haven't actually be. been that you, that you might do, but you're not totally sure, right? And so you're kind of like trying to hold all this in your brain and it's very easy to get overwhelmed and try to think like, how the fuck, are, how, how are we going to actually do all these things in time, right? And then it's been very weird, you know, because like then this week, the entire sort of like wave function, you know, collapses down into a, a set of of really fun and interesting, but now obviously scope yeah, limited, very scoped mm-hmm. uh, things. And you're just looking at it and you're like, oh yeah, this is totally doable. Like, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. So no problem. Yeah. And I think but, what's, what's yeah. so exciting to me, or what's so weird about that again, is like that, that it feels like a mismatch, right? Where it's like the whole point was to be able to make anything. Right. And again, this is why I like to think about the two the two parts of in, true ent- entering production, which is that, yeah, yeah you can make a, anything. There's a difference make. between making anything and making everything. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so we wanted to be able to make anything. This is mean we're, we need to, we are going to then make everything. Yeah. Uh, just make the interesting, fun stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it has been, it has been very cool to, to see, uh, to see it all kind of like really solidify in a way where now we can look at it and just know like, yeah, this is going to work, you know, and like that anxiety just kind of goes away. So, uh, very cool, very exciting. And, uh, we'll, we'll probably have some more to say about kind of how the, the, yeah. the content is shaping up in the coming weeks. Cause it's going fast now, like really fast. Yep. Uh, all right, let's get on to some questions. These questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. The highest upvoted question comes from disgruntled pineapple. Ooh. Oh no. Uh-oh. Yeah. So be careful. They're po- they're kind of pointy. Yeah, they're kind same. of pokey. So don't piss off a pineapple. It's, true. it's just good life advice. Disgruntled pineapple says, "Will Crashlands two be available on the MacBook version of Steam?" Mm, no, certainly not. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, and uh, the reason is simply a just a business one, which is that. Uh, we did have Mac support for the original Crashlands back yeah. in the day for, for a, a long for a while. Time. Yeah, yeah, we pulled it eventually, and then we pulled it because it turns out, and this is sort of this is one of those truths in business that you'll you'll see, uh, typically related to customer focused stuff, where people say there's twenty percent of your customers who absorb eighty percent of your time, but don't produce eighty percent of your revenue per se. Right, and games, it's more like ninety nine and one. Yeah, you know, and yeah. It turns out that most of the bugs and stuff we were getting were from the Mac side of things, but also the percentage of the purchasing player base was so small on that, that supporting, like basically saying we can offer you. It, this it literally was like a 99 and one, like, yeah. like 1% of our players are Mac and like 99% of our bugs are Mac bugs. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of just came down to like, Oh, actually this is, this is just a really bad idea from a business standpoint. Like we're every time, we want to do this. Of course, it's the same thing as you know, we talk about level head. We want to do these things because you know more people playing the game, cool, want to support people on whatever devices they got. But there is, again, there's a hard reality as far as like if we have to spend time on that, then we can't spend time on other stuff that might affect far more people. Yeah. Now, proportionally, like if, if hypothetically, Crashlands 2 hits some level of success where 1% of our players would end up being like 100,000 people or something. At that point, yeah, it's a different pro- question, probably right? worth different, it, right? Yeah, different scale, conversation. Scale changes the conversation for sure. Yeah. But you got to yeah. be a little more careful when you're, especially in the indie space, you got to be a little bit more careful with how many things you're supporting and the realities of those business cases because some of them only make sense at a certain scale. And the yeah. Mac is definitely one of those. Well, I think, and yeah. like seeing Crashlands, like Crash, so Crashlands, OG Crashlands has really like kept our studio alive for a decade, right? Like it's a, it's it's a successful title by you know any reasonable metric, but it's successful for a small studio, right? Like yes. we still almost run out of money several times since we launched mm-hmm. Crashlands, um, and without calling out any specific platforms over the years, because we put Crashlands on a lot of stuff, right? And there's there's one or two platforms that basically broke even in, in the sense of the original labor costs of making it so the game would work mm-hmm. there and getting it tested and deployed and go through all that stuff, right? Roughly, like, in the end, was kind of a wash, right? But now the game is still there, right? And so if future players play it, we still have to deal with, like, over time, the cost just keeps on accumulating, right? Um, And there are other platforms that were, where we're literally, like, every three months, we would get a check for $10, right? Because, like, 
a player would be there, right? It's not here. Yeah, I'm talking about just like nobody's playing. Yeah, so now, if you yeah. imagine, like, if you, but if you still have to now maintain a version of the game for that, whether yeah. it's a store or whether it's an operating it system, or adds whatever, complexity right? to your to everything. Yeah, just and you've got building. like ten players who are doing it, but now all everything you're doing is way more complicated, right? Yeah. Uh, it's just doesn't make sense to do it that way. So I think yeah, the thing so we we learned from both that experience and then with Levelhead, you know, we launched Levelhead on everything also, sort of simultaneously, right? Out of the we game. didn't we oh. didn't do Mac on Levelhead, did we? We didn't no. do Mac. Correct. But, I mean, we did yeah. six different platforms. Yeah, launch, we did. Right? We did all the stores. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that part of that learning experience there was was it's essentially the same thing, which is like, yeah, we can. It's actually it's the same as this design thing. At the end of the day, it's like, yeah, we can build for everything, but it turns out that there's actually only, only a few things where for where we're at, it makes really good sense to build for them. And then the other ones, if they're, if they end up being more of like a, you know, the reality of having to support having made that build is that we pay, we, you know, we have in-house QA, we pay for testing on everything we build. So in other words, you're scaling up your total costs, right? Then you're scaling up support costs post-launch. And if you have any question about whether or not that platform itself will be feasible for bringing in the amount of revenue, not just to offset. Because I think as, as soon as you're just just an offsetting territory, you should not do it because the the added complexity slows down everything else. And this is what we, we had happen with uh, something like Levelhead, where you get a delay on like a console, for example, because of a certain issue. And now you can't put out your next update, which should coincide with then doing a sale and getting an extra hit of revenue for another, say, two weeks or something like that. It's not inconsequential to have the game on multiple platforms because they're not they're not completely independent in terms of how you then manage additional updates, more content, sales opportunities, whatever. And so what we found is that like, oh, actually we should basically reduce the complexity as much as possible uh, just to the places where we know we'll be good. Yeah, and we then- should only launch on a platform if we have, if, well, if we have good reason to believe that we're either going to get a shitload of players mm-hmm. or if we are going to get a shitload of uh, featuring and support from that yeah. platform. Or to give us a chance or or a business deal where yeah, there's some kind of a exclusivity or some kind some of sort of a guaranteed arrangement level of success yeah. basically yeah because yeah, it's like because if you if you say like oh well people you know there's like you guys remember the ouya yeah remember that yeah, yeah. so like there there was all there was a time where like suddenly there was this micro consoles kind of craze because like mobile gaming was kind of taking off and, and some people thought like oh well like what if we made like an android based consoles like nvidia Way did cheaper. it with mm-hmm. the shield and um there was the ouya and like there were a bunch of these things and we i think we actually worked with one of them for uh game towel stick. Game the stick. game stick yeah, yeah i remember that um yeah and like this was this was way back in the day. So they, they gave us what, you know, at the time was like a crazy Astronaut. amount of money. I think it was like five grand or something, wasn't it? It, it was, was less than that. It was quite a bit less than that. But it was more money than Telefight had made yep. at that point. Yep. And so we were like, yes, we could like double our earnings. <laughs> um, and so we put it on the, we put it on there. And I'm pretty sure we got like two players or something. Yeah, no, um, there was no yeah, and this is, and this was just like a common thread that we saw over and over again. It's like there are all these different, and, and sometimes you'll even launch on a on a major platform, um, but just because of the way that platform ecosystem works or whatever, you end up not getting the featuring you need or you know whatever the case may be, and, and the game just kind of languishes there, right? And so, so, but like Adam was saying, you got to maintain it still. So now, like yep. with, now with your two players on that platform, every time that platform releases an OS update, you've got to deploy a patch and stuff. And so then the other kind of issue is there's this uh, this kind of like feedback loop, which I think Mac in particular suffers from, which is like, there's, Mac is not a bad gaming platform. It's no. just the, it's the same as a PC yeah, in terms of like the forum factor and everything. But there's a population problem, which is there's, there's not enough people gaming on Mac for a lot of the major engines, um, mm-hmm. Game Maker included, to be aggressive about keeping uh, keeping the engine compatible and supported on that yes. platform. And so, uh, so because games because it's harder for developers using these middleware engines to make games for those platforms. Those plat like like Mac Mac becomes a worse gaming platform because there's not that many games available for it and therefore fewer people buy it for gaming and it just yeah, creates the, the this. whole supply chain is because we're we're on the the very most downstream side of the supply chain for making games right as in like yep. we make we make a game right 
yeah. and then we sell it. But everybody upstream of us um, is operating under exactly the same, you know, market reality of like Mac users just not being very prevalent in the game space, right? Yeah, there are certain spaces it, where they're ex- like, if you're if you're like in web dev, like one of my frustrations as a person, like mm-hmm. so, like I I have to be a Windows programmer because we make games for Windows, right? Um, but in the web dev space, like everybody's a fucking Mac user, right? Just mm-hmm. everybody. And so and design, like, there's like all these amazing, designers. yeah, designers, there's all these amazing designs, tools and web tools and like cool new things that people are coming up with all the time, new browsers even, right. Mm-hmm. That are just Mac only. Um, uh, because even though that's a tiny segment of the overall population, uh, when it comes to like web dev, it's that's like that's your paying customer base actually is basically the professional niche right? basically yeah right. the professional yeah. niche yeah but for games it's it's exactly the opposite right? it's just <laughs> yeah well it's and, just and i even saw apparently the so the steam deck um mm-hmm. which is which is great i got one it's amazing uh it's a linux it, machine it's a linux machine but that kind of does some kind of windows emulator kind of thingy basically um, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, but, Valve with its infinite resources has put a f- over over literally decades yeah. has been investing heavily into making it so that Linux can be a gaming platform, but for Steam specifically, right? They're like, right, yeah, they're the doing layers, very, on top. and they've done it. The yeah. way they did it was not by saying, "Here's new tools that you can build and deploy to Linux with." They said, "Take your Windows build and we'll do some bullshit." Yeah, they'll just make it work to make it work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very which different. is the right move, hundred you know? percent. But, but. Interestingly, even though the Steam Deck is pretty new, it was like a year old or something, mm-hmm. um, Linux has now outpaced Mac uh, in terms of player population yeah. for Steam games. Yeah. Just because of the Steam Deck? Just yep. because of the Steam Deck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, like, that that should right kind of tell you like uh, – yeah, yeah, yeah. So like a brand new device appears and within a year it is overtaken this, you know, five decades old <laughs> right. uh, OS Mac, right? Um, so like, it's just, it's just not that many Mac users. And as much as we, as always, like there are things we want to do. And then there's things that are actually a good idea, smart to do yeah. and, and, and feasible. And like, as much as we want, we want to put our games on everything and make them available to everybody under all circumstances. But man, like the realities of that really, really slap you in the heart. face. <laughs> yeah. well, and I think the way that I think about this now, because the way that we used to think about this was like, just kind of, just kind of be on everything. Right. Which is kind of similar to what we're talking about the game changer stuff. Where like, the way we were kind of thinking about it was like, be able to make anything. Right. And we've switched how we think about that to also to the idea. And this also is related to the idea of like scalability as a business. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is that people get People confuse scalability with thinking that scaling is the point, right? So that like yes. you're supposed to be growing when scalability is actually about making it so that everything is in a position where if you needed to scale, you could because that's already good, right? Mm-hmm. And it allows yeah. you to adapt to whatever's happening um, because it because scalability actually really means adaptability, right? And I think I think of platforms, whether it's a operating system or a store or whatever, the same way, which is we still want to be able. technically able, right, yes. to deliver to Mac, to deliver to every console, right? Exactly. Um, but we don't necessarily want to do it just because we could, right? The fact that we can is what allows us to be adaptable so that as the market conditions change, if we or manage to secure a deal from a new business partner. If uh, it's whatever happens, we don't have to have all of our eggs in one basket. Like we're not Windows game developers, right? We're we're game developers that then make the game work wherever it makes sense from a business standpoint to do that. And similarly, like when we're designing the control schemes for things, like uh, the the control input mechanism for Crashlands from the very beginning was like we need to make sure that touch controller keyboard and mouse are all are all going to work for this design the whole way through so that as control schemes right because that's like the the dominant thing about whether or not you can get on a platform basically is if you fit the form factor and and so we handle the stuff that like is definitely going to be a problem if we don't when it comes to cross-platform because the rest is like technical details of integrating with the that system right which is usually not about the game design it's usually about low-level stuff, right? Yeah. And so as long as the, the game itself can just kind of be played on anything, then then we've done our due diligence when it comes to making sure that we're ready for the good side of diversifying our where we're actually deploying the game. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that lesson, as you guys are saying, the lesson we learned was that it gets very frustrating to <laughs> – when you have a game out that's been out for a while – 
and it's on a platform that literally sells a copy every two months. And then you have players complaining to you, like your five players on that platform are complaining to you because the version you have on there is out of date by a few versions because that same platform doesn't have an automated pipeline to allow us to upload stuff or because they've made some change that our, you know, our engine doesn't support. And like, there's no incentive for us to push on nor our engine maker, nor engine maker to make a change for that because there's no customer base there. And they would rather put the resources into something else. We would rather put the resources into something else. And all of a sudden you have to, right. Uh, And you can get, you can get really bogged down by, committing to things as a as a person or as a business that in the long term are going to end up just being a cost and yeah. so we got to avoid doing that you got to be careful uh all right next question comes from tim conceivable who says does copilot learn from your code if so doesn't using it risk leaking your proprietary code to the public uh, there are two so so the, for the first answer that it's kind of a yes and a no as in like copilot itself learns from your code, but copilot, like for your own copiloting experience, doesn't meaningfully learn from your code. Isn't like, it's not learning specifically about your code and then helping you specifically with what it has learned. Right. Uh, well, and importantly, copilot will learn from our code because it's, because it's on GitHub. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like Microsoft uses the code on GitHub to train copilot. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, copilot learns about everybody's code and then helps you with yours. Right. Yes. And yeah. So, yours so is whether, a tiny whether we piece were of the training set. Yeah. Yeah. And whether we were actually using copilot on our machines or not, it doesn't matter because if we're using GitHub, then it's copilot's going to be learning from our code. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure handle that's the proprietary information problem. Then. So, so there's stuff. So when you're using GitHub, you could, there's also different, like there, there are some options you can choose, which are basically uh, how efficacious it's going to be because of whether or not you're returning information back and also whether or not you're getting access to like all of the information that's available or trying to more more carefully avoid proprietary stuff, right? And that's an actively changing space because nobody's really sure what to do about that scenario. Yeah. Uh, so the yeah, the, the short story there is that there is some general there is some risk about like the stuff that you're doing becoming like part of a training set somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. I don't worry about it too much because of the kinds of stuff that we're doing. If we were if we were working in like a uh, like a security field, or if we were dealing with with essential like private user information or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, then yeah, I would be extremely hesitant to yeah. So in other words, you wouldn't like be co-pilot. you would be flagging those. Uh, repos in a way that made it so that they wouldn't use them in the data set because you can't. Yeah. So, so like, so private repos aren't included in the, in like the data set. It's only public things. And and basically like GitHub attempts to do due diligence to say like, okay, it's a public repo and they automatically parse like the licensing files and stuff that are in there. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, To, to try to decide if the thing actually is open and then uses it if it is right in, in principle. Um, because of the nature of open source stuff, which is any fucking rando can go like mm-hmm. fork a, a Git repository and be like, well, now here's my copy. And they could just like change the license file, which right. doesn't mean the license is different now because that's not how licensing works. Right. But it looks like it's different now to a robot who doesn't, who isn't going to like know how to track the origin of like where mm-hmm. all this stuff came from. Um, and there are certain pieces of code that like. That have been around for a long time. That's like here's the basically here's the function that everybody uses to solve X problem right. or whatever. Right? There's some and, and those things then appear wholesale in like thousands of public right. open source repositories. Right? So Even though technically that piece from- isn't is like that's an actually invalid. So people are already using this stuff in an invalid way, which is why the robot ends up using it in an invalid way. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a lot of like really interesting nuance and layers of complexity here. Um, I, I can't remember the details of how Copilot is handling the fact that it's like looking at your code in the moment and then it is submitting aspects of your code to the APIs that are Something. doing all this stuff, right? To to Microsoft. And then Microsoft is returning stuff back and then it's, you know, integrating that into the editor. So it has to, but to, in order to work, it has to be taking snippets of your code constantly and sending them to somebody else, right? So at some point I looked into like how much I was worried about that fact and the conclusion I came to for our circumstances was I'm not worried about it. But I don't remember exactly how it all shakes out. Well, and also like, let's say somehow, somehow through Copilot, 
somebody ends up exactly recreating our cake frames code or our mm-hmm. game changer code, right? Yeah. They, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. But also <laughs> you still so, got to make a whole ass yeah, game. Right? Yeah, but <laughs> also the way the like, protection, right? well, I think that's exactly it. That's like, that's my sense of, of how this stuff works is that like, you can't use these tools to like just make a game. Right. Um, as in like, you can't be like copilot, make me a game and it just spit something out. Right. You, you're still piecing together small bits of things at a time. And the way that it works, it's a, it's a statistical model, right? It's not, it's not trying to like copy paste things wholesale. It's basically trying to find the statistically most likely blah, you know, given something. So, so it doesn't have exactly your code. You're just like ready to copy paste into somebody else's yeah. project. Yeah, it, 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 it would if that if that showed up. In a, so this is like the case where you where you do see like the very public things where somebody somebody who's usually like been coding for seventy years, right, or whatever, who's like I was the one who wrote this GPL three code for uh, for this like specific algorithm or whatever, and I managed to get Copilot to just spit out that whole ass like function or class or whatever, right. And the reason is because that piece of code is statistically likely in, in, a, in a whole because that thing is already available in like a million places. Yeah, you say everywhere. You're saying millions yeah, of people exactly. have already taken that. So it's yeah, not exactly. really yeah. – So the AI doing it doesn't, doesn't jeopardize the security of this thing right. that already exists in millions yeah. of places. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so basically, yeah, the way I see it is that given that all of our stuff is proprietary, it's all it's all, you know – locked down on GitHub and stuff. It's not open source. So our our code like wholesale isn't in right. these training sets, right? Little snippets of it as we're actively doing stuff like probably end up adding to in the, the system, right? But in this very uh, kind of just abstract kind of statistical way where the end result, for, for me and for our use case, I'm just like, like matter. There's nothing that can hurt us meaningfully about this process, right? Um, so I, I mean, I worry more about things like um, if you open up a file that has like your actual secrets in it, you know, like your API keys and stuff, right? Then those things could get submitted and stuff. But I, I also know that they're attempting to do obfuscation work. It's like they're trying to detect things that look like random strings and that kind of stuff, right? Right and automatically change them before they get sent off. And like, this is stuff that we also do. Like you're scrubbing. In, yeah, like in our logging system, for example, right? Like, so so we have server logs for everything people do on our systems. And and I'm really aware of like, people don't want their data just sitting on our server somewhere, right? Like I wouldn't. So, so we try to find ways to make it just l- very low likelihood that we're going to create a problem that somebody would be upset about. Um, and so to do that, we, like I do a few things. One is we just hold the data for 30 days because that way it's long enough that if we have questions that we need to answer, we've probably got the data for it. Mm-hmm. But it's short enough that like it's not likely that any given piece of data is going to be there for very long. Mm-hmm. And then I also just have these various steps that I go through where I just like look at all the data that comes through. And I'm like, does this look like an email address? If so, rip it out. Right? Yeah. Does this look like a random string? If so, change it to something else. I don't else. want it. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. want it because that yeah. might be a secret, right? <laughs> yeah. And and so I think so. Copilot's doing similar kinds of stuff. Um, and while I don't just like blanket trust, you know, GitHub or Microsoft or whatever, um, I know that these issues are extremely sensitive, and they have put themselves in a very precarious situation by interacting with people's data in this way. And so I kind of trust the net effect of them operating at this scale with something like this where yeah, right, right. where they have to really pay a lot of attention and be You're saying really basically careful if they fuck it up, they're going to fuck it up, it up on such a level yeah. that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you. class action lawsuit time. <laughs> yeah, now, we, now, now we get to go get $100,000 from Microsoft or whatever, right? Like still yeah. not So that's great. that's still a win. Yeah, you know? still a win. And again, it's because like <laughs> the net effect on us because of, because of what we're making, um, which is video games, right? And because of how this stuff works is like, it's just, there is no world in which the outcome of them getting some of our code information is that like somebody beats us to the launch of Crashlands 2. Yeah, yeah, that's like not, a, that's not a yeah, meaningful. Yeah. If we, if we were making some kind of like business to business, uh, like back end app, like, right. Like the, like a company uses to track inventory or something like that compared to a video game. That is a trivial piece of software. Yeah. <laughs> but even, even still, it's, you're not going to get that so wholesale like, out of. Yeah, but, impor- but importantly, it's like it's like a single function piece of software, yeah. right? That like just the amount of code in it and and what it's doing is is 
pretty tightly constrained, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, whereas like, like I was saying before about the video game stuff, it's like, it's not just, it's not just code. Like we have, we have like web code, we've got uh, cake frames, we've got the game changer stuff. We have all these independent game systems. We've got libraries for handling inputs and all this stuff. And even if you had all those things, like Adam was saying, you'd still have to make Crashlands too, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, um, and we have even if you, all of them. And when I go into the code, I have the whole fucking code base just right there, right? And when I'm trying to figure out how it works and like move between things or whatever, it's really fucking hard, right? Like, There's like really 130,000 lines of code yeah. in this project. And, <laughs> and it <laughs> only works wholesale, right? Like yeah. you can't, yeah. you can't just copy paste like two of the thing, two of the scripts out of Crashlands too. And be like, yeah. okay, cool. These will work now. I can just even ninety percent of it. You can't take. Yeah, and I, still I would bet it. you like, that there's, like, all of it. there's almost no one file in like the whole Crashlands code base that you could just take, and it would be sufficiently self-contained that it would that it would work and do something yeah. useful, right? Or, or if it is, it's just some kind of basic ass utility. Yeah, it'll thing, be something like, called too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everything yeah. else is just so networked and like integrated with each other that you have to have the whole game for it to work at all, mm-hmm. um, or nothing, right? <clears throat> yeah, it costs and you, all of the and like, all the data. Yeah, like yeah. Seth, imagine yeah. if like <laughs> imagine a horrible world we lose all of our data except for a random half of the files for Crashlands Two, right? Yeah, I'd just start over. Yeah, it's, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not even worth trying to make that to piece that back together. It's not. It's just not possible. Um, yeah, if there was a Thanos snap of yeah, our code, just half gone. Uh, yeah, it's it's all gone at that point. So. Uh, all right. Final question comes from Sauvignon, who says, "I recall, perhaps incorrectly, that it's good. At, you know, it's good That's to admit good. memory. Sucks. Memory, memory sucks. Yep. I recall, perhaps incorrectly, that publishing Levelhead resulted in the studio developing some kind of pipeline type mechanism that slings content onto different platforms with relative ease." And I therefore assume that the, for now, Netflix slash Steam only plan for Crashlands 2 is purely commercially motivated or is Switch slash Xbox slash other just not a viable option for getting eyeballs at this stage, mm-hmm. pipeline or otherwise. So, so we kind of addressed the first question yeah. earlier. Yeah. But I think more, if you want to get into kind of the specifics of it, the reality as far as discovery goes on, let's say, the mobile and, uh, and, and Steam in particular storefronts is that both of those platforms have had to handle such a large number of volume of games for so long that the discovery mechanisms, while definitely not perfect, and certainly while Steam, I think, in this avenue has a huge leg up on even the mobile space. Yeah, Steam to me is the only good yes. algorithmic platform for discovering. Yeah, the the reality is that all of the consoles are basically new to having shitloads of games on them from independent developers, and as such have varying levels of support algorithmically and as far as their storefronts go for making it so that if you have a good game, this whole idea, if you have a good game and you market it pretty well, can it actually just sort of go once it starts going on one of these platforms? Um, And what we found over the years is that it's like basically a really high level is that Switch was really good before uh, Nintendo had most of its uh, sort of first party content rolling out, right? Yeah. Back when there were fewer things on the platform. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there were nowadays, fewer just everything, right? There was not very many indie titles, not very many first party titles. It was just it was know, new. It was like the early days of of Steam, right? Where like yeah. every year twelve games would come out and you would just buy all of them because they I kind of called it the uh the blue ocean versus red ocean yes. hypothesis, right? Like blue ocean is like it's totally open. You, you can go anywhere, whatever. Mm-hmm. Red ocean is uh it's now full of sharks and everybody's been eaten and it's just blood it's crazy. in the yeah. water, right? Like don't go in there. Yeah, and so Switch <laughs> is an interesting one because again, like the cost of participating on the platforms is actually relatively high, right? You have to it's do very high. Yeah. Console cert. It has its own weird fucking controllers you gotta deal with. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean yeah the cost of of developing for that hardware and operating system. Um like added and on it's, to it, it's very, very high. It's and very optimization high. is very hard too because it's a it's a seven year old platform at this point. I'm pretty sure or yeah. eight. Yeah. It was weak hardware eight. when it came out. Yeah, when it came out, it was three hundred dollars, and it was about the equivalent of like a mid tier Android phone mm-hmm. eight years ago. Yeah. Right. So like optimizing, I'm I'm amazed at some of the games that are coming out oh, on yeah. Switch with like how they've managed to keep them running above 30 or like at, even at yeah. 30 frames yeah. per second. The level of like uh, hardcore engineering talent that's that's going behind making these titles work is just Yeah. And in and in so many cases we it's don't actually have title that. it's, not it's titles that are 
only on the Switch, right? Yeah. Like Tears of the Kingdom and stuff, right? Like yeah, first party mm-hmm. stuff. Um, it it is a, like a big reason why these these Switch exclusive games take so long to develop is just those engineering challenges of getting it optimized, right? Yeah, Which, tremendously challenging. So yeah. I think it's, and I think the, the unfortunate thing you've seen in uh, the Nintendo space is that a lot of, because a lot of developers are, I mean, most of them are gamers, right? So a lot of indies in particular harbor a kind of nostalgia and a love for Nintendo that I think has made them easily fall prey to the idea that like, it's just good to be on the Switch. Um, it's not if it, you know, implodes your studio or costs you a shitload of money and time when uh, you don't have a lot of money and time to go around, right? But the problem is that there's this really intense nostalgia kick, I think, for people in this idea of being- It feels on, prestigious. Like, it feels prestigious. To launch right? on a Nintendo console. Yeah. yeah. And like, if you value it for that purpose, then then just be very explicit about that that's, you know, what you're into there. Um, because the reality as far as that market for indies go is that it has been very it's challenging really hard. for it seems a to number have of years now. Collapsed. Yeah. In a lot and of this is not like new knowledge. You could kind of Google around and see some horrific sales numbers from people. So on our end, it's one of those things where, again, it's like- we're not interested in potentially, essentially it, it's a scale problem, just like the Mac thing where it's like, we know that if you have a game that's already done really well and then you put it on Switch, it'll, it'll make some money. That's fine, right? Um, because there's already like a level of awareness or a level of success for it and you can then sort of roll that into getting some additional featuring or whatever else on the store. Switch has no ability for you to surface your games aside from setting them to basically a dollar once the game launch is done. I'm not Have they cracked down that yet or is that still the only... They have, like just, they have not. I think it's still yeah. just the same fucking thing. So you yeah, don't you have see options. indies are constantly putting their games on like really steep sales on Switch because it is literally the only way to yeah. get people to see it. Yeah, and... So there's there's all these things like that then on the on the Switch ecosystem um, that make it just not a good idea until we have either some assurances or until the game has already launched and we're like oh this is again it's a proportion thing this is very very successful it'll obviously do just fine over there and we don't have to worry about the sort of long term cost issue and then uh, Xbox is interesting I think mainly because the primary value for us is is looking at something like Game Pass right just having a huge volume of players is super useful. Because um, yeah, as a store, it's not that different from Switch, right? As a, yeah, they do, as a hardware they, platform, it's not nearly as weak, right? So it can, yeah, it's yeah, less. It's easier to build for, and their all their build tools are actually way better. So it's like you know, as far as if we we're going to pick a console, I would pick Xbox because they their cert takes yeah. like a day now. It's like it's very slick. That's the thing is, is any yeah, any console does still have that cert process, right? Yeah. So it's and kind iOS, of like a, right. It's, yeah, iOS it's just, does too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So. So in, in those cases, it's kind of like w- once you start getting onto a platform that that inserts itself into your deployment pipeline with some kind of manual evaluation or approval process where that's where it's like you have to have a really, really good reason to fuck up your pipeline that badly mm-hmm. to go onto that platform. Yeah. Like there has to be a guarantee of some big, big money to make yeah. your life that much worse. Yeah. And then again, it's, it's, it's people just don't think about the maintenance and – Because it's not just the upfront development cost, which can be very high to get a thing working on a platform. It's that every single change then that is made to the game that gets deployed at some point um, has to be evaluated in all these – that means what QA is, right? It has to be evaluated in all these different contexts to see what happens. And that means that it's like on Switch, if you're just always hovering around like the device's max capabilities, right? Yeah then that means every single design decision that you make for the game that you're making has to include the question of, you know, will this run on Switch or, or do we need to add some more engineering time to make sure that we can get it running on Switch, right? And so now you, you basically balloon the cost of every single decision that you make for whatever, for whatever your, like, platform, your strictest platform, platform requirements across all the platforms that you're on, yes. right? Is you basically take all of the strictest ones and that's now collectively your set of requirements that you have to hit. And those can get really fucking tight yep. the more platforms yeah, I mean, I, you're on. I'd say for Levelhead, Switch especially probably, probably consumed about 20% of our development time. Yeah, it's no joke. Um, like it's really no joke. In terms of all all the hardware and cert requirements that we had to hit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, and now, if we want to if we want to put out an update for Levelhead, um, it's going to have to go on the Switch also, right? Still, yeah, it still has to go through that pipeline. Yeah, it's going through the pipeline, and the, so the amount of like the the testing complexity, right? Because if you're just like thinking about this, right, like. We've got, and we have way more QA than any team of our size. Like this is, we're pretty abnormal, yes. right? Um, and uh, actually, on that note, we should we should say uh, congrats to Carl, who's been our yeah a long time part time 
QA, who's now a full-time QA as of a couple hey, weeks hey, ago. So yeah, congrats to welcome. Carl. Um, and, but part of the reason for that is, is exactly this stuff, right? We're like, we need just a fuckload of testing all the time. And when it comes to like, if, if you look at uh, like Jordan, our lead QA, like if you look at his desk setup or sure, who's our platform oh, yeah. specialist who make sure we can build for everything, <laughs> These right? dudes are just covered. They're in just devices. covered in devices, right? And they have to have all this like arcane knowledge about, okay, I want to test this thing on this thing. So that means I have to like log into the sandbox version and use this like test account to be able to do this thing. And then I, to communicate with their team to say, oh, hey, by the way, like this is what's going on with this build. I have to like go to this weird web portal and log in with these credentials, this other one with this other set of credentials. Like mm-hmm. the amount of like weird shit that has to happen to just to test these things or just to get them published. That's that's beyond, that's after we've done all the development work, right? It's just outrageous. It's just so much. Uh, yeah, it's, versus it's Steam where you just like, you just sling your build onto Steam and you basically did it, right? Yeah. 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 Well, I think, I think the, the lesson to me here that, that we've, that we learned was that like they're basically when you're, I think especially when you're starting or if you've just been on Steam, we're just on mobile where essentially because it's easier to get on and because there's basically no wall at all, uh, there is a prestige element associated with the consoles or a nostalgia yeah. element associated with Nintendo. And, and I think iOS too, right? iOS has that like sense of like, yeah, there's a bit of, yeah, there's some that like, Oh, it's harder to do quality this. bar sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and you have to, cause I, I think the question is interesting, right? Cause it's the, the framing of purely commercial. Is this a purely commercial decision? Um, it's hard to know because every, basically, I guess the way I put it is every decision that we've made in the past that wasn't purely commercial when it comes to the, the scale of this kind of a decision on this, the was impact it, of the was scale. Bad. Was bad. <laughs> was when we were great. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. 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 And bad, yeah. bad in a way that like depending on how our cards could have fallen, the fact that we did it could have could caused have the suit to slow. And I'm not even kidding about that. Choosing to support, say, Switch in the case of Levelhead, choosing to like – build for Mac for Crashlands when we had barely any capacity for doing anything or testing. Like there's all these things that you do because of a different reason that's not actually based on any commercial reality that, well, I guess the level one's a little bit different because we had support from them and whatever. But like you're basically, you're doing these things where you're, it's not just, I've looked at the business case, right? Uh, which it's, it's true to some degree that you do need to, you know, you, you can't just be on only the thing that is like a guarantee and, not take any risks and stuff like that, but there's, there's qualified risks to take. And I think it's basically, we've learned the qualifications associated with various platforms over time. Yeah. Well, the, the risk isn't stuff. just, you don't make money. Right. And that's correct. That's, it's, it's that you continuously lose money yeah. on maintenance and time and, you know, yes. Uh, yes. yeah, it's yeah, launching, launching onto a platform is the beginning yeah. of a whole bunch of stuff. It's not like the end point of development. Yeah, well, I guess it's, it's <laughs> so. the first end point of a bunch of other stuff that people don't think about, which is like, QA devices, you know, mm-hmm. form factored problems and like all, all, the, all of the engineering problems that go into that. Yeah. And that's so you can get it out the door. And then once you get out the door, now you have the, the next indefinite phase, which goes forever, right? Like, which is people now have bought this game. What if only one person did, you know? Yeah. But, so now we're kind of in an interesting flip flipped position compared to where we used to be, which is like, now we want to be on as few things as possible yes. while still reaching as many players as possible. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause like, but still yeah, it, it, while being able to be on as many things as possible. Yes. Just not yeah. Actually Cause again, it's, it's about that. Like I was saying scalability, meaning like our ability to expand mm-hmm. versus do we actually do it? And the answer to that second question is just based on the cost benefit analysis, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I would, I would really, love to have it on Mac because so many people I know like only have a Mac device, right? And I want them to be able to play Crash Sense too. Totally. But that's not a sufficient business case until there's a until there is a strong enough business case, then I then I can be like, fuck yeah, we can do this. And like, yeah, I would love it to be on Switch. Switch is yeah. a great platform. It is so fun to play stuff on Switch, right? Oh yeah, it's great. But until there's a business case there, then you know we just have to say, oh, I mean, as much as we would love to. But it will be supported on Steam Deck, you know, yeah. which is a big fat switch. So yep. that's okay. Yeah. You got options. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think there's there's some weird thing about this framing, which is I, I share it. I understand the basically pointing out like that isn't purely a commercial decision is just like. I think, well, we I would say serve, it's okay. Like, well, I mean, like it's well, but what I'm trying to point out is like we cannot serve, we cannot survive making non-commercial decisions. Does yeah. that make sense? Like. Yeah. Well, I think, well, I think there's, there's a spectrum here, right? 
because like because there's there's doing purely business. commercial versus yeah and so I think it's like I think this <laughs> and I think this is where a lot of there's a lot of confusion that people have but also like a lot of uh, the vitriol yeah a lot of the way that people think about this about running a business is that running a business is like you see as sort of inherently evil therefore it's and there's truth like running a publicly traded company I think is inherently evil because of the design of how public traded companies work right there's no way around it it's the outcome of that is basically evilness right. Um, but that's not synonymous with like, with running a business. Like is, is like the coffee shop down the street evil because publicly traded companies are evil, you know, like it's not really how that stuff works. Um, and any company at any point, like is trying to make decisions about what to do. And there's so many things that go into it that it's a company. It's decisions are commercial. That's what's, Mm -hmm. that's sort of by definition, right? But any given decision they make can be can be at the could have a short term negative impact on the bottom line because they're trying to offset that with a longer term positive impact or vice versa, or because they just think it's a good thing to do and they don't have shareholders who will sue them into oblivion for doing a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so like, so like in our case, we we definitely like we optimize for our own experience day to day doing the work because we're trying to do this for the long yeah. haul. And we have to keep ourselves from burning out. We have to be able to make enough money to pay ourselves and our staff. And and again, for the long haul, so we all have enough certainty that we know we're at least in this for another few years before we don't know what's going to happen, right? And so from a business standpoint, like that's basically what we're optimizing for is having a good work experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also trying to make the, the – for the product that we're making while doing that – we want we have goals of like having as many players have access to these as possible. Like we want the we want our games to be accessible, played by lots of people. Like we want and we, we don't want there to be barriers in the way, right? Mm-hmm. Both of those goals, these internal goals of our own satisfaction and these more public goals of like the stuff that we make and the outcome that it has for people, uh, are constrained by just the reality of what it means to be doing this stuff, right? And so we're constantly in this push and pull of we would love to do this, but X, or we would love to do this, and we think we can get away with it, so we're going to do it anyway, right? So, like, so Maybe everything that we do, too, as is, a project, right, was like the original, like one of the original founding ideas with it was like we have a successful IP out there, mm-hmm. let's do a number two, right? Yeah, which you could argue again, purely commercial, but then the way we decided to do it was not let's just do a repeat. It was let's rebuild everything we've ever done about how to do let's everything. Make, yeah, let's make what we wish we had made for original Crashlands yeah. given now that all the skills and stuff that we've developed. Let's do a sequel with a capital S which turns out to cost a fucking lot of money and time. Yeah, so we're going to end up spending four years yeah. of of between six to eight people's plus some part-timers mm. like time, right? To that's a, that's a college degree right there. Yeah. For a whole bunch of people, right? Yeah, um, yeah. We're gonna we're sending like eight people to college, basically, right? For <laughs> to make this yeah, to make this game, and we could have tried to like constrain it down and say like, oh, it's just a raw sequel. We're gonna do this in like two years, and you know, yeah. just squirt it out the door, or whatever. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that we could have tried to do, um, but we also think this was the best commercial decision. Even yeah, though so it's that, gonna take twice as long, right? right? Is it sort of those ones where it's like I, I, that's why I I have some friction against the framing because it's like I don't know. Yeah, it's too it's too uh, it doesn't have enough nuance basically, right? Of the question of like, there's no such thing as a purely business or purely personal decision when you're doing business. It's always both because it's always yeah. both, right? Yeah. You can't take yourself. You can't take your own personal preferences and ideas out of the conversation, but also no. you can't ignore the fact that if you do literally whatever you want, you just run out of money and die, right? <laughs> so, but you also so don't know what's going to do happen, right? So also the because the other thing, the idea of like a purely commercial decision, means that like you can see what will happen if you do X, and even though X is bad for a whole bunch of reasons, it's the best commercial move, right? Which is a very rare thing that could possibly even be true because how could it be really bad but also good, you know? Again, unless you're a public trader company. Um, and but that also means that you know what's going to happen when you do that, mm-hmm. right? To make this like purely – like I know it's going to happen so I'm going to do – that. like that's not an actual feature of the world for anybody. You don't, you don't yeah. get to make decisions that way. And so what we're all doing all the time is saying given – the huge breadth of unknowns and then the, the holistic kind of experience that we're having, like running a business and living in this space, right, is how do we make – how do we choose what happens next mm-hmm. uh, in a way that 
to the best of our guests, right, is going to maximally satisfy all of the constraints and goals that we're operating under. Yeah. And commercial and otherwise. Yeah, commercial and otherwise. Um, and I think I think like it's like work life balance. It's like it's better not to say well, I have work and I have life, and those are things I'm trying to best. But the question is, how do you integrate these things yes. together so that they become all part of the puzzle? Work life integration. Yeah, not balance. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I hope that answers the question. It's uh, it's complicated. There's a lot of considerations that go into things, and we're always we're always trying to do our best to get our games to as many people as possible. Uh, in, ex- in as accessible of ways as possible while also not, you know, as screwing ourselves as possible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and making sure that we have a good development experience as well. So, uh, and that's all the time we have for this week. We'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa DaCosta for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, you can just go to podcast.bscotch.net where we have links to the community Discord, a way for you to donate and links to the podcast archives. And uh, we'd also like to thank everybody who has wishlisted Crashlands 2 thus far. It is, uh, it's picking up steam on steam. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's really moving. Uh, so if you haven't done so yet, uh, help us out, juice the algorithm, head on over to Steam and uh, give Crashlands 2 a wish list. We really appreciate that. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.